Hello, hello, hello. It is your host, Grayson Decker. How are we doing on this fine Sunday? Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. I feel so much better. Thank goodness. I had to skip out on Wednesday's episode if you're not following me on social media because I got COVID and was quite literally on my deathbed. So I do appreciate you all for not hating me for dying momentarily. But I am back and I'm excited to be here. I sound a little nasally still, so I'm so sorry if that bothers you, but I can't get rid of it. (laughs) It's just, it's here to stay. So yeah, I apologize. But today we're going to be covering a case that is honestly quite controversial. I still have no idea what my personal conclusion is when it comes to this case. It's just so confusing. So many sides, so many things that happen, corruption, just a very crazy case. So yeah, it happened in Canadian Texas, which is actually right by where I grew up, Amarillo. And I was actually 16 when this case happened. So I was pretty far into the true crime game at that point and I had seen it quite a few times in the news during that time but I didn't keep like super up to date with it just because I was super busy doing my own high school thing during that time but his case deserves to be shared so we're going to talk about it today and I'm going to preface it by saying I am not telling this story from any point of opinion. I am just telling you the facts telling you the multiple sides, telling you what I think is kind of weird about the two different sides or any discrepancies that I came across. I did a lot of research on this case to try and give you all of the facts, but they're still just not there. So I kind of want to leave it up to you to tell me what your theory is. So please reach out and let me know what you think and how you think this case occurred and what happened and what went wrong. Yeah, let's get into it. Today, we're going to be covering the case of Thomas Brown. Thomas Kelly Brown was born on September 13th, 1998 to Kelly Brown and Penny Meek. He had two brothers, Tucker and Toby, and Thomas was known to have a super amazing personality. He was a very witty individual and he was super funny. He could work a room and have everybody laughing in no time. And he was everyone's friend, loved talking to his peers, he had a very caring heart, and he was always there to stand up for those in his community. Thomas attended Wright Elementary School in Perryton, Texas until he was in the second grade. And in 2006, he began attending schools in Canadian, Texas. In 2016, Thomas Brown was a senior at Canadian High School, and he was scheduled to graduate in May of 2017 just a year before I was. While attending Canadian high school, Thomas was a very involved student. He was in football, where he was on two state championship teams, and also during this time, he was in the theater program. During his junior and senior year, Thomas started in the Hemphill County 4-H, where he would eventually advance to state in public speaking. He was also the president of his class both of these years as well. He was planning to attend college, not sure which, after graduating from Canadian high school, and here he would be pursuing a goal to become a sports broadcaster. To get into the case, on November 23rd, 2016, it was a cold fall day in Canadian, Texas, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. 
Penny Meek, Thomas's mother, was enjoying spending time with her three sons that were all together at the same time over break. Around 6 p.m. that evening, Thomas Brown lets his mom know that he is going to go hang out with some friends. He asked if he can take her debit card for some gas, and he heads out the door. Thomas met with some friends at the middle school, and they all drove around and hung out, basically what all teenagers do in small towns. They all arrived back at the middle school parking lot around 11.20 that evening, before going their separate ways. Thomas then headed to Franck's Oil and Gas and filled up his tank. The card was swiped at 11.28 p.m. Penny had given him a curfew of midnight, so leaving Franks at about 11.30 gave him plenty of time to make it back to his house before his curfew. Penny began to grow concerned once midnight had passed and there was no sign of Thomas. Because Thomas, he was known to be a very respectful son, he listened, and he was actually usually early to his curfew. A few minutes past midnight, Tucker, Thomas's brother, texted him asking him where he was at, but this message was never read. At 12.10, Penny texted him once again, and the message was never read. And at 12.15, Penny texted him one last time, and this message wouldn't even deliver, meaning that Thomas's phone had either died or it was shut off. Tucker and Penny took separate cars and began to go to all the places where they thought that Thomas might have been, uh, but she couldn't find him or his Dodge Durango anywhere. And at 2 a.m., Penny began telling or like trying to call all of his friends' phones, to which she learns that they had all made it home, but Thomas did not. Because Chris Meek, Thomas's stepfather, was a volunteer firefighter, Penny was able to call the sheriff's office dispatch. And after about 45 minutes, they got a response from Deputy Pine Gregory, and he began to look for Thomas. At 3.30 a.m., both Penny and Tucker had returned home from their independent searches with no luck. And shortly after that, Tucker rode around with Deputy Pine Gregory to help in the search for him. Tucker had known where Thomas's girlfriend was living at the time, so he basically just told him, like, I can be useful to you during this search, so he rode along with him. But by 6 a.m., they returned and they had no luck of finding Thomas or his vehicle. A few hours later, one of Thomas's friends and their father headed up in a helicopter to search Canadian for Thomas's red Dodge Durango. They were able to find his vehicle in part of a suburb and it was like by some sewage ponds and this was only four miles away from Thomas's home. However, there was no sign of Thomas. Shortly after his disappearance, Thomas's family hired Philip Klein, who is a private investigator, and two months after he had disappeared, his backpack was found. This was found about four miles from where his car had been located. And then 10 months later, his cell phone was located alongside Lake Marvin Road. And this was about five miles from where his backpack had been found and nine miles from the car. So just kind of very odd circumstances, like why is all of his belongings just kind of spread out across this 
nine mile radius. It's just very odd. Um, and in 2018, the Hemp Hill County Sheriff's Office actually turned the case over to the Texas Attorney General Criminal Investigation Division. This case has been suspended due to a lack of evidence, and that's pretty much just the general overview. So I did kind of want to give you just an unbiased look at what the case was before I break it down into the two side of things because the DA released a report where they basically broke down all of their findings. It was 250 pages. They released this report and then the client investigators come out with their side of things and do a basically like three whole hours of a presentation at town hall in canadian texas where people from canadian were actually there listening and watching the powerpoints and all sorts of stuff of what the client investigators had to say these two stories contradict themselves so i am going to tell you both sides i'm going to start with the da and how they view this case to have like unfolded and yeah, so just keep that in mind. Two different sides, and this is number one. Wednesday, November 23rd, 2016, 6.04 p.m. Thomas Brown leaves his home. At 9.11 p.m., Thomas Brown makes an internet search for a suicide hotline. At 11.26 p.m., Thomas Brown's Dodge Durango is observed driving towards town, aka Canadian, and 11.28 to 11.36, this is the last known credit card transaction by Thomas Brown, and this occurs at Franck's Oil and Gas. And this is where he pumps gas into his car, most likely a full tank. Thursday, November 24th, 2016, 12.23 a.m. Thomas Brown's phone loses power or dies, but the DA's office specifically states that the phone, in fact, did die and was not shut off, so keep that in mind. At 1.10 a.m., the Dodge Durango is seen heading in the direction of Thomas Brown's home, and then at 1.11 a.m., the Dodge Durango is seen heading back in the direction of where town is, and in the opposite direction of his home. At 5.28 a.m., the Dodge Durango is seen heading in the direction of Thomas Brown's home, and then again at 5.30, the Dodge Durango is seen heading back into town away from his house again which is just very very odd at 5:56 a.m the dodge durango is presumably seen driving into the water treatment facility and never seen exiting at 8:30 a.m the dodge durango is located at the water treatment facility some items of interest that were found inside of thomas's vehicle include a 25 caliber cartridge case that was found on the floorboard of the front passenger side of his vehicle and they actually said that there was no forensic evidence provided by the casing so there was no latent prints that could be identified and the casing could no longer be tested for DNA per the DPS lab. There was also a soil sample that was taken from an apparent wet spot near the driver's side of the vehicle. They assume that it was probably urine, like it looked as though somebody had stepped outside of the vehicle and urinated on the ground. Uh, and this was tested at the University of North Texas, but it yielded no results. January 27th, 2017, the backpack of Thomas Brown is located and recovered. 
They also found his high school laptop inside of it, and on this laptop, there was nothing of forensic value. October 14th, 2017, the iPhone that belonged to Thomas Brown is located, and they also find a gun case this day, Um, and this could also be known as a cartridge case. This is a component of the ammunition that houses all of the different workings inside of it. So like the firing pin, propellant, primer, and primer cup, that's all held inside of the casing. So that's important to me anyways. Forensic testing carried out by DPS concluded that no profile could be obtained from hair samples in this case. And then the records from Apple indicate that Thomas Brown's iCloud did not really contain any data that would be commonly backed up, like iMessages and photographs. This is of interest because IP logs and data access logs in his phone were actually blank. And records from Facebook indicate that Thomas Brown's Facebook page had been removed per a representative of Facebook. And this can actually only occur if the owner puts in their password to the account. So that's a little odd. January to February of 2019, the skeletal remains of Thomas Brown were located and recovered. They were identified via dental records. January 9th, 2019, Partial skeletal remains were discovered by Pine Gregory, who was the county deputy at the time of the initial investigation, and this was while he was on duty at 9.45 a.m. February 12, 2019, other remains were found during the Office of Attorney General search. Thomas Brown's iPhone, we're going to do kind of like a deeper dive into it here. So the iPhone was analyzed by the FBI the OAG Digital Forensics, and an independent digital forensics expert. The phone does, in fact, contain Thomas Brown's information and data, and the information and data could not have been transferred from one phone to another because it it contains an internal application that is connected to the IMEI, and the device was proved to be purchased from Verizon Wireless. And if you're like me and you don't really know anything about digital stuff. I like did take a digital forensics course, but I wasn't very good at it because I'm just not very tech savvy. So I had to look it up and educate myself on what an IMEI is because I had no idea. It is basically a 15 to 17 digit code that is given to each mobile phone ever. It can be used to inform people of the network from which the phone originated from, the warranty, carrier information, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It can actually also be used by law enforcement to track a phone. And this would explain why the information could not have been transferred because it was a Verizon wireless originated device. The search for the suicide hotline did in fact occur at 9-11 p.m. and this could not have been altered due to an activity or all of the activity on his phone being timestamped. So it's there and it's in the information. It's it's in the facts that he did, in fact, search up the suicide hotline. The phone died at 12.23 a.m. on November 24, 2016. It was proven to not have been shut off, but died. um, And it also did not have power again until it was powered on by the FBI 
once it was located in October of 2017. And this next part to me is very crazy and just very shocking. So the iPhone was found in pristine condition. And I mean pristine. Like there was no scratches, no nicks, no cracks. And the FBI also confirmed that the moisture indicators that would have been found inside of your phone had not been activated in Thomas Brown's phone. And this was super odd because the area where it was found, Canadian, had actually received about 26 inches of rain in between the time Thomas went missing on November 23rd, 2016, to when the phone was discovered on October 14th, 2017. This is over a year, and all four seasons had basically like played out. So it's just honestly shocking that the phone was found in such good condition. And also the area where it was found gets mowed during the summer and there's absolutely no evidence of the fact that it was run over by a mower at all. And they basically say that it is possible that the phone could have withstood all of that, but it's just not probable. So now we're just going to talk a little bit more about the investigation as a whole. And remember, this is still the DA's side of things. Penny Meek, Thomas's mother, supposedly texted a witness in January of 2017 asking if their child knew the passcode to Thomas Brown's phone and clarified that it was a four-digit number. The child then began asking other friends of Thomas Brown if they had known the four-digit passcode and the investigative team confirmed, confirmed that the HCSO or the Hemp Hill County Sheriff's Office, in fact, did not ask the family of Thomas Brown for the passcode in 2017. And this is one of those things that's like quite important, so please just remember that. Digital forensics also proves that Thomas Brown's iPhone was most likely in a charging phone case because records show that there is never actually an unplug event for the rest of the evening and this suggests that during the time that he was hanging out with his friends he his phone was plugged into a built-in battery charging case that was just attached to his phone i used to use one of those they're pretty cool they just keep it charged but it's like it plugs into the bottom of your phone um and so it couldn't have been any other form of charging like from just a regular cord they also state that all of his friends said that he would never go anywhere without this charging phone case on his phone because he really liked to keep his phone charged at all times. That's also kind of another issue that arises later, but just keep it in the back of your head. Now we're going to talk about the Hemp Hill County Sheriff's Office. Penny Meek and Philip Klein, the private investigator, stated that they were shown a photo of Thomas Brown at the gas pumps at Franks Oil and Gas on the night of the disappearance, and they were showed this picture by Nathan Lewis, the sheriff. HCSO was investigated and closed down for about 24 hours while uh, the investigators of OAG physically searched the premises and forensically downloaded and analyzed target computers and the server. All of the in-car camera data was also obtained, and after all of this, no evidence was found to support that the photo ever existed on any of their equipment at any time, which is just very shady to me. I, I don't know. 
It's just very odd. Uh, their opinion is that the Franks oil and gas video surveillance was mishandled and that Sheriff Nathan Lewis failed to document the collection and loss of this particular piece of evidence. Nathan Lewis didn't even write a report over this until January of 2018, which is insane. Uh, but apparently criminal intent for tampering with evidence cannot be established, which I find a little odd, but I digress. There are other witnesses of the surveillance footage, but the camera that would have shot the video of him pumping gas was also supposedly found pointing at the ground, which again, very, very odd very suspicious, does not make sense. How was there footage of him and then there's not and it just somehow disappeared and then oh also the camera wasn't even looking that way so how could there ever have been footage? Just seems kind of shady if you ask me. Pine Gregory found Thomas Brown's skull around 9 30 a.m on January 9th 2019. No evidence was presented or established that someone within the HCSO staff would have been involved in Thomas Brown's disappearance or death, which not necessarily sure, but once again, I digress. I'm not going to give you my personal opinion. I just kind of want to leave it open to y'all. A little bit more about his remains that were found in January and February of 2019. Uh, these autopsies of his remains did not actually present a cause or manner of death to them and they couldn't really figure out what actually happened to him. They basically think it was probably a criminal act or a homicide. And some evidence that supports that is the 25 caliber cartridge casing found in Thomas Brown's Dodge Durango, but no forensic evidence was found from this casing, which this is another thing that I find hard to believe because cartridge cases can have multiple markings. I spent a lot of time in my most previous like semester actually learning about all of this and they can tell you a lot about the gun that fired them. There's markings on the cartridge case, like I already said, like the firing pin mark, breech face marks, extractor marks, ejector marks, feed ramp marks, magazine marks, chamber markings. They could have at least used the class characteristics from the cartridge case to narrow down the group of guns that they were looking for, but apparently they couldn't do this. Some of the class characteristics that they could have looked for include a head stamp, brand, type, caliber, firing pin impression shape, breech face mark shapes, and ejector mark shapes. They're all very different depending on what kind of gun is shooting this ammunition. Trace amounts of Thomas Brown's blood was found in his Dodge Durango. Blunt force trauma was proved to occur to his skull when examined, but it was not determined if this happened before or after death. Again, another confusing thing, and personally, I don't know a whole lot about anthropology, so I did a little bit of research, and I found that you can kind of determine when an incident happened to skeletal remains, but I'm also not going to say that I'm 100% correct because they obviously know how to do their jobs, but perimortem trauma when looking at a skeletal remain victim uh, refers to trauma that's on fresh bones and the injury shows no sign of healing and this can also reveal the cause of death or even the tool that was used to cause trauma to the bones. 
postmortem when referring to skeletal remains would mean more dry bones. So dry bone breaks differently than fresh bones because it does not have any soft tissue on it. And trauma could be observed as depressed or adhering to the bone. There is oblique angles, smooth edges, and consistent coloring between the broken part of the bone and the area around the broken part. So I don't really know if they could have determined something, but based off of what I've read and researched, it does kind of seem like maybe you can sort of figure out if this blunt force trauma occurred before or after his death, at least. Items belonging to Thomas Brown located in various different places, miles away from each other where Thomas Brown's skeletal remains were found, uh, is a little suspicious because it could lead to a more sinister idea of what happened to him. Like, why is all of your stuff just so sporadically spread out? It's almost as if somebody was trying not to make it easy to find, you know what I'm saying? Now we're going to talk about some circumstantial evidence. So basically, there was no apparent motives or threats in Thomas Brown's case. And from the point of view of seeing it as an accidental death, there was no other evidence of trauma found to his skeletal remains other than the blunt force trauma, but this also cannot be concluded without further evidence to support it. Now for the theory of suicide. So this is mainly, I feel like, where they tend to turn the story to, which just kind of frustrates me, but whatever. So the evidence that they have to support this suicide theory is the search on November 23rd, 2016 at 9-11 p.m. for the suicide hotline and possibly the blunt force trauma. Some circumstantial evidence to support this is that multiple different witnesses and peers said that Thomas Brown struggled with his mental health uh, and nothing makes me angrier than law enforcement just automatically assuming a case is a suicide, especially one that is like this, where it is so obvious that something is very off with his case. It's not just so cut and dry like that, but it almost seems like they just refuse to do any further searching. You know what I'm saying? Like, just don't automatically assume just because somebody is not the happiest person does not mean that they just killed themselves. His body was found miles away from his car. Do you really think that he would have parked his car, got out in the freezing cold, and walked nine miles just to kill himself somewhere else? It just seems very not plausible. His peers were also able to give evidence of him frequently joking about suicide or dying to his friends, which not going to say that I'm proud of this, but when I was younger, I feel like I also did the same thing with a lot of people that I knew, and it was never a surefire thing or anything to be concerned about, uh, and this is not to say that somebody should joke about it at all because it's not something to be taken lightly, but I'm just simply stating that it does happen, and it isn't all the time just an automatic thing that that is like what took their life. One witness stated that a few months before his disappearance, Thomas was seeking help with his mental health issues, 
but he declined an offer from this specific individual to drive him to Amarillo, Texas for confidential counseling because he did not want his mother to know. Thomas Brown was also apparently recently told before his disappearance that his grandfather had committed suicide off of Lake Marvin Road, and that's actually where his body was found, and it wasn't a heart attack as Thomas had previously believed. He also apparently quit football, had a breakup, and was trying to figure out where to attend college that next year, and these were all viewed as stressors in his life at the time, and yes, they're considered stressors, but I also feel like that's just a normal high school stress, you know, like nothing out of the ordinary. When Penny Meek was first interviewed by HCSO, she allegedly stated that she believed her son had committed suicide by playing the choking game. And I did not know what this was, so I had to look it up. And it's basically a game that started to go around for quite a while that involves young kids and they put themselves in a situation where they're playing out asphyxia to achieve a euphoric feeling. And I asked Creighton about this, my husband, and he said that when he was in high school, a few kids were playing this like directly in front of him, which I just think is crazy and a little stupid. Love you though. <laughs> um, some unexplained and contradicting evidence in Thomas Brown's case, according to the DA's office, is that Thomas Brown's Dodge Durango was found so far away from his body and it was just kind of odd how it was just found right there and like the way that he was driving it that evening just very weird tucker brown who was thomas's brother and how he like rode with the deputy pine gregory from about 4 a.m to 6 a.m on the evening slash morning that thomas brown went missing this is seen as odd to them um how thomas brown's belongings were found basically scattered around all in different places along lake marvin road they weren't found near or inside of his dodge durango or found with his skeletal remains they didn't find any items indicating suicide around his remains so why would you just assume that but i digress multiple polygraphs that detected deception were found among like many various witnesses evidence indicated that tom brown had in fact turned on the charging case attached attached to his cell phone at the time but the phone was found without the case and penny stated that she had the case in her possession after the disappearance of tom but she has not presented the case to law enforcement which they think is a little weird after the sheriff's office obtained a warrant to search Thomas Brown's iCloud, it was found that there was little to no data found in his actual iCloud account that he shared with his brother Tucker. Um, and it was very different from his brother Tucker's account that showed tons of photographs, messages, and other data. Thomas Brown's Facebook page was also deleted, which we talked about earlier. Penny Meek stated that Philip Klein had taken it down and then Philip Klein states law enforcement that he thought that Penny took it down. So that's just another thing that they find pretty odd. And that's pretty much what the DA has to say about the case. I'll go into the actual report and what I found later, but that's their side of things. And now I'm going to tell you the Klein investigation side. All right, now we're going to talk about the Klein investigation side of things. Um, and 
once again, gonna preface by saying I'm not choosing a side, don't have an opinion. I really just want to know how y'all feel about this. It's kind of interesting how the two stories vary in my opinion, so just let me know what you think. I'm gonna start by telling you their timeline. So, November 23rd, 2016, at 6 to 6.15pm, Thomas Brown leaves his home, and this would be the last time that his family saw him. 6.26 p.m. cell phone records show that Thomas sent a text message to Penny to let her know about his plans for that evening. 6.30 to 7.45, Thomas Brown was with Michael Castletime, and Michael Castletime is a previous resident of Canadian Texas. He was known as a nice guy. Philip Klein said he had some family issues, but that overall he was, you know, a pretty decent guy. He smoked marijuana, passed out a few joints to people in the community. So just kind of like a low-key drug dealer, but whatever. 7.45 to 11.20 p.m., Thomas Brown is riding around with Christian Webb and Caleb King. Caleb King is the son of a state legislator, and Christian Webb is a young woman whose parents own a company called Flap Air. The two individuals are the last people to see Thomas Brown alive, and the PEI team also stated that they stayed in the Webb family like ranch home while they carried out their investigation, which a little odd to me. Like that is one of the last people to see Thomas Brown alive and you're carrying out a professional investigation and you're going to stay at their house. Just a little weird, but I digress. I, I don't know. At 11.25 p.m., Thomas, Caleb King, and Christian Webb depart from the middle school parking lot in Canadian, Texas in their own cars and vehicles to go their separate ways. And this is proven by testimonies and cell phone pings. At 11.28 p.m., Thomas swipes his debit card at Franks Oil and Gas, and he fills up the gas tank. This is important because when his vehicle was found, there was only a fourth of a tank left. The PI team called Chrysler Damer and explained uh, that they had found this vehicle. It was a Chrysler vehicle, and they basically asked them if they could calculate the distance driven on this vehicle after it was, like, filled up. So they did this, and there was also that picture of him pumping gas that was taken. So the investigators knew the car. They knew what he was wearing at the time, and they knew what he looked like. At 11.30 p.m., Thomas responded to a text message from Sage Pennington. This is proven via cell phone records, and Sage Pennington was previously dating Thomas Brown. Uh, they had just recently broken up. It wasn't a super big deal. They were both going their separate ways for college, so they decided that they just wanted to kind of have some fun for their senior year, which, don't blame them, makes sense. 11.45, a text from Sage Pennington shows that Pennington had read the message that Thomas Brown had just sent her, but she did not, in fact, respond. November 24th, 2016, keep in mind, it's 24 degrees outside. Very cold fall day. 12.03 a.m., Penny texts Thomas about his whereabouts. Like we talked about previously, it was kind of a strict household. They had given him a curfew of midnight and basically said to him that if he were even a minute late, he would have some issues and he would get grounded. At 12.10 a.m., Penny texts Thomas again with no response 
and this was about his whereabouts. The PI state that the time of the incident probably occurred between 12.03 and 12.10, and this is because of cell phone records involving triangulation, basically where they use like three different areas to make a triangle based off of cell phone pings, and they determined that Thomas was within a thousand feet of the football field. At 12.15 a.m. to 12.19 a.m., Tucker and Penny sent a text message to Thomas, and they were not delivered, which meant that his cell phone was either turned off or had died. At 12.33 to 12.45 a.m., Penny texts Thomas again with no response or delivery, and she's asking him where he's at, telling him he needs to get home, because like we talked about earlier, this is just very unlike him. He's always on time. He never sneaks out or does anything bad, and he also was just not answering his phone calls at this time. They were going straight to voicemail. At 12.30 a.m., Tucker and Taylor Russell and Penny Meek all left in separate vehicles to go look for Thomas. That's the first discrepancy. I'm really not even sure who Taylor Russell is, but Philip Klein feels inclined to present him in his case. Chris Meek stays at the house during this time to keep an eye out for Thomas. 1.45 a.m., Penny arrives back home and she states that she couldn't find anything at all. At 2 a.m., Robin, Caleb, and Christian Webb are woken up and asked about where Thomas might be. It basically stated that they had dropped him off at the middle school and supposedly got into their cars at this time to go start looking for him. Uh, and Philip Klein is a little weird about this. He is like, they supposedly got into their cars and went and looked for them. But he says that most of them are not seen on video footage looking for him, but only Christian Webb was. At 2.22 a.m., Penny calls dispatch to report Thomas Brown missing. She knows that something is wrong, and this is proven by a cell phone and dispatch records. At 2.30 a.m., Tucker drops off Taylor Russell in Lipscomb County and tells Tucker to call him and let him know what's going on. At 3.03 a.m., police arrive at the home of Thomas Brown, and Pine Gregory shows up on scene, and he's just asking about what's going on. He enters their home, and they tell them the situation. At 3.15 a.m., Taylor Russell walks into his home in Lipscomb County. Once again, don't know why he's relevant. Have no idea. At 3.33 a.m., Tucker requests to go out on a ride with the deputy because he knows where all of the kids hang out. And also, as like stated in the DA's report, he knew where Sage Pennington lived, so he could help search there too. At 3.37 a.m., Pine Gregory arrives back at the home of the Meeks to pick up Tucker to go look around the town with him. And at 3.49 a.m., according to dispatch records, Daniel Dariya is assigned to the Meeks residence. At 4 a.m., Robin, Caleb, and Christian are told by the police to go home. From 4 to 5.45 a.m., Tucker rides with Pine Gregory around in the patrol car searching for Thomas Brown. At 4.16 a.m., call logs and dispatch records show that Pine Gregory decides to officially determine Thomas Brown as a missing person and wakes the sheriff up. At 5.33 a.m., Pine Gregory says that he is unable to locate Thomas and is also advised to go off duty and that the sheriff will be going on duty at this time. 
At 5.56 a.m., there is a camera on the side of the town hall building that picks up Thomas's car, driving to the water plant, taking a right turn and going up a hill just south, about 50 yards from an apartment complex. The lights turn off, and that's pretty much all the p- camera will pick up. At 6.09 a.m., they are unable to locate Thomas Brown. From 6.15 a.m. to 7.30 a.m., Chris Meek decides to get up from the living room and go look. He gets into his vehicle and heads out. At 6.16 a.m., Nathan Lewis is assigned to the missing persons case and is en route, and that is the sheriff. At 6.21 a.m., Nathan Lewis is in service. At 6.23 a.m., Jerry Lynn, who is another law enforcement officer, says that she is assigned and en route. At 6.30 a.m., Penny goes out to search in her vehicle. From 7.30 a.m. to 8 a.m., Sheriff Lewis meets with Penny and Chris at the sheriff's office, and they tell him the story of what's going on. At 7.55 a.m., Jerry Lynn is busy at the field house and is kept off of the radio. At 8.56 a.m., Trey Webb, who is Christian Webb's father, and his other daughter, who is a pilot, get into the helicopter and begin to look for Thomas's car because obviously they're not having a whole lot of luck down on the ground so they get a much better angle from like that point of view. Within 15 minutes of searching for his car they find it. At 9.04 a.m. Trey Webb calls the sheriff's office and explains that he found the vehicle and is hovering over it. Police respond and get on scene. There is blood in Thomas's car. The passenger side window is open just a little bit The car smells of marijuana, and there is a spot of urine next to the vehicle where someone got out and went to the bathroom. But there are no tracks that they can actually follow, so they call some bloodhounds in, and these bloodhounds follow a scent all the way up to the Canadian River and just stop because the scent had ended at that point. At 4.50 p.m., a call from dispatch says that they uh, pick up the car and then they delivered it back to the Meeks home. No one checks the car really, checks it for fingerprints or does forensic investigation of this vehicle, according to Philip Klein, and they say it's because he is a runaway. The sheriff also states that he is just a queer kid and has gone to North or South Carolina and that he had maybe killed himself. And that's what Philip Klein says is the initial idea about what happened to him when he arrives on scene. He had actually filled up his car that evening because he had planned to go to Amarillo, Texas. Shout out to the birthplace. Uh, And he was doing this with some friends. He had already paid for tickets and everything. So Philip Klein is actually wondering like, why would he kill himself if he had plans that very next day that he was obviously excited about, obviously preparing for. And, you know, like that just doesn't really make sense. What was missing from the car was a backpack, keys, wallet, and his high school laptop, like we talked about before. November 24th, 2016, a secondary search begins. This is over a six square mile area down by Lake Marvin, which is where all of the teens go to party and stuff. And no hits were found by the bloodhounds, and there were no signs of Thomas in this area. The bloodhounds had sniffed Thomas's car and his belongings inside of the car, and they could tell that he was just not at the river. November 25th, 2016, over 100 people came in 
to the search for Thomas and completed grid searches and sonar searches, but nothing was found from these searches. November 26, 2016, searching the area again, it still yielded no results. And then on November 27th through the 29th of 2016, horseback searches ensued and nothing was found. November 29, 2016, the Meek family actually hires Klein Investigations and consultants as their private investigative team. November 30th, 2016, a new team of searchers came in and nothing was recovered. November 30th through December 4th, 2016, Philip Klein makes his first trip to Canadian and fills the place out. He started gathering all of the information for the case, started interviewing kids, and asked them where he might have gone. And in all of these interviews, they say to look at Lake Marvin Road. December 2nd, 2016, more bloodhounds were searching and the sheriff said that they needed to look on the eastern side. December 31st, 2016, the Klein investigative team arrives and begins interviewing more teens and they like really just fully jump into this investigation. January 27th, 2017, the backpack was found and recovered. April 20th through the 24th, the Klein team has a meeting with authorities, and specifically on April 21st, 2017, uh, they told the Klein team that all that they had was theories at that time. They asked the sheriff if they can run a search dog based off of the scent from the backpack that was recovered, and they say that they were denied and not even allowed to go anywhere near this backpack. So that's a little suspicious, but like I said, I... I just don't even know with this case. I don't know. June 1st through June 4th of 2017, 15 ground searches were conducted based off of the time distance studies that they had done. They had calculated the gas spent from Franks to the apartment complex and it all led back to Lake Marvin Road. And the computers prove that the mileage puts the car perfectly at Lake Marvin Road at mile marker 11. August 17th through the August 20th, 2017, they do a walk on Lake Marvin Road. They find Thomas Brown's books and shoes. They call law enforcement out and they buy the evidence and take it with them. And they also found other miscellaneous stuff. And also during this time, somebody else was searching through footage, basically. And apparently they recovered a photo of the sheriff's car at 4.02 a.m. on November 24, 2016, when we know that he didn't actually start until 6.21 a.m. So that's a little weird. October 12th through October 15th, 330 searchers showed up to do a volunteer search that was held out on October 14th and they knew that they were looking for a gun case and they knew this because of the 25 caliber um, cartridge case that was found in Tom's vehicle. The car had never been searched prior to this and so they found the gun case and more of Thomas's books for school. Thomas's cell phone was found uh, and like we talked about, it was really odd because of the pristine condition, no cracks, no nicks, no nothing. Uh, the phone was packaged up and sent to the FBI headquarters in Quantico. November 21st, 2017, there was a turkey trot for Thomas. January of 2018, they find out that it is in fact Thomas's cell phone that they had recovered. March 30th, 2018, Penny and Chris take polygraph tests. Chris was an unknown result 
and Penny passed her first too. Uh, and they supposedly both kind of failed when they were talked to about the phone in particular, which I guess could be considered important because they think that Penny had the charging case after he disappeared and did not give it to him, but believe that the case was on the phone when he disappeared, but when it was found, it was found without it. So they think that's a little weird and I could kind of see why, but not really. July 1st through the 5th of 2018, the client investigative team conducts 11 more interviews, follow-up interviews, and they say that the stories start to change and the timeline starts changing. January 9th of 2019, the body of Thomas Brown was found on Lake Marvin Road. They were told not to search when searching on October 14th, um, past mile marker 11 to this dirt road because supposedly law enforcement had a drug operation going on that they did not want to be compromised. The body was found at mile marker 12. So that's a little weird. And they also state that on October 14th, when they were carrying out this search, there was like a patrol car sitting right at mile marker 11 with Pine Gregory inside of it and he was making sure that none of them went past that point. And he's also the one that found the body, so that's a little weird. Apparently someone was looking for deer shed and this individual was Pine Gregory. Uh, and that's when they stumbled upon Thomas Brown's remains, but we know that he was on duty, not looking for deer shed. January 9th, 2019, Pine Gregory was in his patrol car he had gotten out, walked around, and that's when he found the body of Thomas Brown. And what's really odd about it and what stands out to the client investigators is that it was on federal land. Uh, they had found skull, femurs, chest cavity, and some ribs. And it did take dental identification, like we already talked about, to figure out that it was Thomas Brown. But the big issue here is that it was found on federal land. Keep that in mind according to client investigators. On February 1st through the 3rd of 2019, Thomas Brown's memorial service was held, and July 11th, 2019, Philip Klein takes his polygraph test and passes. August 21st, 2019, the sheriff's office is searched by T. Cole, and they find false documents not only in the employee files, but the sheriff had supposedly written supplemental reports and was putting them in Thomas Brown's file, and that's a little sketch. Brent Clapp was the officer who told them this information, and he was actually later fired, so that seems a little shady. The sheriff was actually never charged with anything, but he was reprimanded, and on November 15, 2019, Sheriff Lewis resigns, and the law enforcement agent that told T. Cole about the false documents and supplemental statements, like I said, he is also fired. In March of 2020, they stated that they were trying to get a grand jury impaneled and that this should have been held in July of 2021. This was because the Federal Bureau of Investigation should have been informed that the body was found on federal land, but they were not. July of 2021, OAG tells the Klein investigative team that there is going to be no grand jury for the Thomas Brown case. Meeting with the district's attorney office determined this decision, and by law, the case is effectively shut down at this point. August of 2021, Penny takes a polygraph test again, passes, 
passes the second one, but the third one is weird uh, when they question her about the phone again. So the client investigators get with Penny and ask her about the phone. And Penny basically states that she had been calling the phone and leaving voicemails after he had gone missing, basically just telling him how much she missed him, all sorts of stuff. Like, I have done the same thing with relatives that pass away suddenly. You still want to talk to them. Uh, So the polygraph examiner said that it was probably PTSD and emotional distress that was causing this failure in the polygraph when she was asked about the phone. The T. Cole investigation was crazy, but Officer Clapp advised that he had never brought up communications field training with Sheriff Lewis, and he was further asked why he thought that Lewis fabricated those documents, and he stated that it is because it's what he thinks happened, basically, because Clapp said it wasn't outside the realm of Lewis to fabricate a document because he had manufactured supplemental reports for a missing person a year and a half after it had happened, aka Thomas Brown. So there's a little bit of corruption going on, and that's kind of why Sheriff Lewis, I feel like, resigned, because he got caught doing something he shouldn't have been doing. So as much as I would love to trust the DA's report, it's hard to also not question it. But like I said, not my opinion. Klein states that Thomas Brown was injured and thrown into the back of his car, and he says that this happened because there was blood in the back seat of his vehicle. And then they talk about how only 38% of his body was found and that the animals most likely got to the rest of him. They actually have a recording of Sheriff Lewis that they played during this presentation. And it's basically him talking to Penny and Chris Meek. And he tells them that Philip Klein, their private investigator, planted Thomas's iPhone on Lake Marvin. He says that they had done extensive searches beforehand and that it's just super strange that Thomas's phone was found once Klein investigators got out there and searched and that it was in outstanding condition. So like I said, just a whole lot of controversy. It's insane. The drama in that video, just the townspeople, crazy. November of 2017, luminol testing of Thomas Brown's Dodge Durango is carried out by Klein investigators. And luminol is a presumptive test that must be followed up by another presumptive test and then on to a confirmatory test to determine that it is in fact blood. But I'm going to get to the luminol testing later when I break down the DA's report a little bit more. Thomas Brown's injuries, according to the Klein investigators, is blunt force trauma to the head and Klein says that the blunt force trauma was most likely the thing that caused his death and MJ another investigator said I don't want to discount this blunt force trauma to his face basically stating that it was really important and Philip Klein said something a little insensitive but he said that someone got their face smashed in how he described it. They received multiple tips during their investigation and those included three different ones from law enforcement. So a law enforcement officer officer said that Pine Gregory pulled Thomas over that night and he was in fact the last person to see him alive. Another law enforcement officer said that dash dash cam footage and Dollar General video footage had disappeared and that it was of the doing of Sheriff Lewis. And then one more report said, word for word, 
squeeze that deputy and you will get a body. That was from a law enforcement officer. So, little suspicious. Klein investigators also talked to Chris Jones, who is in jail for robbery and simple assault. They interviewed him five times, and though he is a criminal, his story never changed, not once. And his story is very interesting. It adds a very interesting aspect to this case. Like, very interesting. He states that Nathan Lewis, aka Sheriff Lewis, paid him to play high school football at Canadian High School. He also said that his life was threatened based on whether he won the game or lost the game. He states that Sheriff Lewis told him, if you lose any more games, we're going to kill you. He was also told what games to win or lose because a group of individuals in Canadian Texas gambled on high school football games. He was living with Coach Kenning at the time, and he was taken out to the bridge and threatened to be shot because he lost a bunch of money for Canadians that day. And then he states that Thursday evening, so the day after Thomas was missing, Chris Jones got into Sheriff Lewis's vehicle and he was driven around for about 25 to 30 minutes with goggles on. Once they got to their destination, the goggles were taken off of him, the headlights were turned on, and he saw Thomas Brown sitting in a chair, tied up, and Pine Gregory was standing there with a gun to his head. He was told to lose the football game the Friday after Thanksgiving or they both would die. And that was apparently the last time he ever saw Thomas Brown. And that seems pretty off the walls to me, but I talked to Creighton about it and he does say that gambling, paying players to play at your specific high school, those kind of things do occur. And who knows, maybe they owed some people some money so they were really threatening the lives of high school students over gambling. It's a dangerous game. So I'm not gonna discount it, but I also just don't know. When Klein investigators requested records from the district attorney's office, they said that they had nothing to send Klein investigations about all of the, like, the updates in Thomas' cases. In Thomas's case. There is a recording of McDonough saying that he has a ton of info about a terabyte and it's about 85% of the case. But then directly after that turns around and sends an email that says he has no anything to send to Klein investigations about the case, which kind of weird. Now we're going to go to their anomalies of this case. This is what they think is weird about the case. They say that Nathan Lewis pulled out an AR and pointed it at Thomas at 1.30 a.m. in 2015 while Thomas and a friend were just driving around. This is apparently according to Thomas Brown himself, and it was the first time that him and Nathan Lewis ever crossed paths. Nathan Lewis immediately told Klein investigators from the jump that Thomas had just run away with a gay man. The footage of Thomas Brown at the Frank's, Frank's oil and gas station was shown to the PIs and Penny Meek, Thomas's mother, but then mysteriously disappeared without a trace of it ever even existing to begin with. Klein investigators say that Nathan Lewis is the one who asked Penny Meek for the password, which we know is very controversial because... DA's report says that they, in fact, did not ever ask her for the password. Thomas Brown filled up his tank with gas shortly before he went missing, but it was found with only a fourth 
of a tank left. Sheriff Nathan Lewis failed his polygraph test. Klein investigators say that the sheriff's department basically steered them away from Lake Marvin Road. Weird. Klein investigators found the cell phone on Lake Marvin Road, and this was from a tip from a text dot worker, and they had, like, found the phone, tossed it, and then, like, they went and looked for it, couldn't find it, but then they did the extensive 300-person search, and then they found the cell phone. So they think that that's a little weird. And also just the condition of how the cell phone was found. There was never a call made about Thomas Brown's body being found on federal land, and there was also never a justice of the peace called to the scene where Thomas Brown's remains were located. And Philip Klein basically stresses 49.07 Texas Criminal Procedure says, and he's talking about the justice of the peace being called. So I kind of looked that up because I didn't really know what that was. Uh, And it basically states that a physician or other person who has possession of a body or body part of a person whose death requires an inquest under Article 49.04 of this code shall immediately notify the Justice of Peace who serves the precinct in which the body or body part was found. And it says a peace officer who has been notified of the death of a person whose death requires an inquest under Article 49.04 of this code shall immediately notify the Justice of Peace who serves the precinct in which the body or body part is found. So the Justice of Peace was actually not notified in this case until a week and a half later, which upset them, obviously. They also think that the crime scene processing of this case is very weird. The case was basically just processed as a suicide or a runaway not as a homicide or just a very odd death. So the photos of Thomas's vehicle, the anomalies that they found, is that his car was full of multiple different charging cords, and they believe that this debunks the idea that his phone had died. They believe that it was shut off. They also believe that something happened to him in his vehicle. And then at the end of this presentation, they were allowing questions from the media and just the people of the town. So I kind of want to talk about a few of those. So he was asked what happened to Thomas Brown. And their theory is something that happened to him. Something had happened to him on the football field. And then the eye post in the car shows a pool of blood from his luminol testing, which I will talk about later. Uh, But he basically states that his head was beaten, he was slumped over, and then maybe inevitably shot because of the cartridge case found. Uh, When he was asked about the charging case, he didn't really talk much about the charging case, but they talk about the actual software that was used to analyze Thomas's cell phone from the sheriff's department. They said that they used paraben and gray key, which is not something that the FBI would use according to them. And they said that he had gone into incognito mode, searched the suicide hotline. They said that this was super weird too, because why would you want to keep the suicide hotline private if you're planning to kill yourself? That's what they said. So I'm really not sure. But they also say that his phone was never even analyzed by the FBI at all. So very contradicting statement there. They believe that it was a kid that parked the car and walked home that evening afterwards, and they say this because they peed on the ground next to the car, and he 
Philip Klein says, if you're a seasoned criminal, why would you kill someone and then urinate on the ground right next to their car? Which does make sense, but that's why they think it's a kid. They say that the soil was actually never tested, and they say this because at a DA's meeting before the report actually came out, they said DNA is hard to get from urine anyways, and that it was never tested. To the Klein investigators, Chris Jones, Castletime, Ricky Ivey are all persons of interest in this case, and that's pretty much it when it comes to their presentation. So that's what they have to say. And as you can tell, it's very different. That's why this case was honestly just confusing to research because there's so much information, but you really just don't know who to believe because obviously there's some corruption within the town of Canadian and the law enforcement, but also the client investigators are a little, what's the word I'm looking for? Big-headed a little bit. They kind of, I don't know. I'm not going to get too far into it because I don't, it's not my opinion. I'm, it's up to you. <laughs> so now I'm going to give a little bit of a breakdown and kind of what I see as discrepancies with what I found within the DA's report. So it was full of affidavits, evidence request stuff, pictures, crime scene photos, all sorts of stuff, and the luminol testing, which we'll get to in a little bit. But the blood evidence in Thomas Brown's vehicle. So there was two small stains that were found in his vehicle that were collected and tested, and these were positively identified as Thomas Brown's blood. Uh, and there was one swipe that was found on the driver's side door, and the other swipe is in another location that is not disclosed to the public by investigators, and this is just to keep the integrity of the case. Other items in his car were free of blood, and there was no observations that were made by anyone that the car had seemed recently cleaned or, like, had any sense of, like, cleaning supplies or just like wet spots, anything like that. Just nothing that looks like it was recently clean. There was some red markings that were depicted in forensic photos that were taken of his car, and these were tested and found out to be paint. I guess like the seniors and stuff would paint, and that's what that was from. So now I'm going to tell you about the luminol testing done by the Klein Investigation and consultants. So Klein Investigation states that there was blood all over this vehicle, and they say it was proven to them by a luminol test that they carried out themselves. The DA report states that these results are actually invalid due to a number of different things. So luminol doesn't actually require an ALS, which is an alternate light source, this test must be just carried out in complete darkness, but other than that, you don't have to have a light. Klein investigators did not find the second spot of actual blood that was not disclosed, uh, and this was when they carried out their own luminol testing, so they couldn't even find the other second small spot that the sheriff's department had, so that's a little weird. The DA's report also states that it is believed that they found so much quote-unquote blood because they used a blue light during the search and it was just the light illuminating against dark objects. So that's what made it seem like there was blood everywhere. And personally, the pictures of the luminol testing to me 
do not look very convincing. Luminol is also only a presumptive test, meaning that it could be blood or it could be bleach or another cleaning substance. So another presumptive test must be carried out after this to determine that it is blood and that's usually the phenothaline test. And then a confirmatory test needs to be done to in fact determine that it is human blood. And an example of that would be the RSID test. Uh, it's a forensic test that an examiner can use out in the field to determine what kind of bodily fluid they're looking at or even in a lab setting. On November 30th, 2017, Klein investigators state that they would have the samples tested. And then by July 20th, 2020, Klein still had apparently not heard anything. So that's a little weird. Just a little weird. On August 17th, 2020, the DA received a memo from Philip Klein, and it stated that he had conducted his luminol test using proper evidence retrieval and a luminol product from Pioneer Forensics. He also states that he used a blue light and yellow glasses, but the instruction manual for the Pioneer Forensic Luminol Testing, which is in the DA's report, said that no ALS should be used and that he actually didn't take any samples because supposedly the sheriff's office told them not to take the samples and to leave the scene untouched. So why did you spend months, years lying about the fact that you took these samples and you were having them tested? Just doesn't make sense. And also not to mention that in these reports where they're talking about luminol, they misspell luminol and they misspell pathogens not once, but twice, and they're spelt two different ways. So, little unprofessional. Now we're going to talk about the skeletal remains. So, UNT determined that the trauma observed on the skull that was found could not be attributed to a single or to multiple incidents, uh, and that was if the trauma had occurred perimortem, and they didn't know because they didn't have further information. Blunt force trauma was found in the maxilla, zygomatic arch, and the greater wing of the sphenoid. These injuries were said to have not been the cause of his death, which is very different from what the client investigators say. They say that it was probably the cause of his death. When the team asked UNT if there could have been a gunshot into the head through the base of the neck, UNT said that this most likely did not occur because there would have been more indicators on the actual skeletal remains that said a shot had been fired. So the conclusion from the DA's report is that friends who were with Thomas Brown that evening, Caleb King, Christian Webb, and Michael Castleshine, and Sage Pennington, they all were very cooperative and they are not considered persons of interest. They also say that Chris Jones is an unreliable source and that he has told multiple different versions of his story and it is accounted and that he is accounted for the evening of November 23rd, 2016 and he is also not seen as a person of interest. Nathan Lewis and Pine Gregory are also not persons of interest in this case and are accounted for via phone records and dash cams. And then in October of 2021, the district's attorney's office created a cold case and missing persons unit, with Thomas Brown's case being the first one to be looked at. It's a questionable death case and it is suspended until further reliable evidence comes to light. 
The family of Thomas Brown has tried tirelessly to get the DA to look into impaneling a grand jury so everyone will have to testify under oath, but the OAG does not believe that presenting the case to a grand jury would be fruitful. There's not enough evidence in Thomas's case to be able to conclude whether or not his death was an accidental death, a criminal death, or a suicide. And that is the case of Thomas Brown. So, yeah. <laughs> Let me know what you think. Because it is very, just so odd and so confusing. So many different stories are out there. So many different theories of what happened. It's just a very, very, very crazy case. Please let me know what you think. Like, please reach out. I really, like, genuinely want to know. I better see you in the comment sections telling me what you think because I, I want to know. All right, everyone. So that concludes episode number six. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. It was a lot of research and I hope that I did it justice it is just so confusing, so I really hope that I did a good job. I really want to know what you think, so please reach out to me on my social medias, and I'm going to tell you those now just because I also post a lot of information about the cases there that I think you would like to know. You can actually see visuals of things that I'm discussing and people that I'm talking about and all that stuff. So my email is notsograteful.deadpod at gmail.com website the not so grateful dead dot podbean.com instagram the not so grateful dead underscore podcast and tiktok is the not so grateful dead pod and my facebook is the not so grateful dead podcast with grayson decker i hope to see you there and i hope to see you next week on wednesday for a new episode i'm excited to be back and alive <laughs> i appreciate you all for being here all right bye-bye